0: ARP, I'm sorry we put you on blast today. I love people over 50 for the record, like in the same way that Trump loves suburban women. Um, cut that. <laughs> that. Let's not include that. Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. It's been almost 14 years since Sarah Palin rocketed to one of the best known and most polarizing politicians in the country as John McCain's running mate. Since 2008, Palin has teased a comeback multiple times. Maybe she'd run for president, maybe for Senate, But this year's special House election in Alaska following Congressman Don Young's passing is Palin's first four-way back into electoral politics. At first blush, you might think a Trump-endorsed, universally known Republican in a red state would be a shoo-in. But it's more complicated than that, and we're gonna explain why today. We're also gonna look at what it's like to be a political outlier in an increasingly sordid and polarized country. Think Republicans living in cities or Democrats in rural areas. How do people who just don't fit into their area's political mold experience politics? And what do the parties have to offer them? And we've got a good or bad use of polling example. If you've ever heard someone claim this particular part of the electorate will determine who wins or loses this fall and wonder, how do they even know that? What does that mean? Well, then this segment is for you. Here with me to discuss is politics editor Sarah Frostensen. Hey, Sarah. Hey, y'all. Also here with us is politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hey, Alex. Hey, Galen. And elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. How is everyone doing? Is everyone ready for spring? Is spring officially here yet?
1: I don't think it's officially here, but I'm ready for it. I feel like D.C. and New York maybe have more springy times in Texas does. I'm enjoying my three weeks of spring while I have it.
2: It seems like it's going to get warmer here in the New York area the rest of this week, which is going to be nice.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Spring so far in New York has been brutal. Alex, what is the first day of the year that it's going to be over 90 degrees in Austin?
1: I mean, we had one last week. It was 96 one day uh, last well, week. well, never mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Damn. And I think there's a couple of days this week where it's like 90, 92. So. Wow. Should be great. This is why I use my ceiling fan.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Listeners, we made Alex turn off her ceiling fan because it was making noise, and we just wanted to have a a crystal clear audio experience. So small sacrifices, big sacrifices, actually, that we make for all of you in the audience. Please appreciate. Uh, Let's talk about polling. So every election, there seems to be a debate over which voting block is the, quote, most important. In recent elections, college-educated women, Hispanic voters, suburban voters, for example, have all been put in the media spotlight. Trump even made a plea at a 2020 rally in Pennsylvania asking, quote, Suburban women, will you please like me? And lobbying or activist groups try to play into this framing, arguing that the group they represent is the key group in the next election. Which brings us to a new poll sponsored by AARP, which was published with a press release titled, quote, women voters age 50 and over will decide the balance of power in the next election. The press release reads, quote, new research released today by AARP found that only 17% of women in this important voting block have made up their mind about who they will vote for in the 2022 election. About two thirds, 65% of these voters say they will not make their decisions until weeks or just days before election day. They conclude, quote, the direction they choose will very likely decide the balance of power in Congress and state houses around the country. All right, Alex, is this a good or bad use of polling?
1: I voted bad. I do think it's interesting to do deep dives into specific demographic groups, but without breaking it down by race or party, these things are kind of pointless to me. And I don't think AARP did that, at least not in the initial write-up. But I think it's hard to say, you know, this group of voters will 100% determine elections in 2022, because usually elections are not decided by one voting block for the most part ever.
0: I kind of wish Nate were here today because I feel like if everyone's going to say it's bad, he would somehow find a way to give an it's good take. But maybe, Jeff, I can see you already agree with Alex. Maybe, Sarah, you'll be the contrarian today. Is there anyone here who wants to say that this (laughs) is a good use of polling?
3: No, I was going to say god-awful. I mean, it is (laughs) bad.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right, tell us more.
3: Okay, so... My main quibble with it is that the question that they're asking whether someone has made their decision on who they're going to vote for that's just that's not how you measure what support looks like in an upcoming election. And notably too, ARP the focus was on women, but they interviewed men as well in this poll. And when you expand it out to men over the age of 50, 20% have only made up their minds for who they're going to vote for. That's only a three point difference. So like, men are also this really big group. But then, you know, going further, a really useful metric going into a midterm election is generic ballot polling, which asks voters in Americans, who would you support, which party for Congress if the election were held today? ARP asks this question also in this survey, and they find that 48% of women over 50 would back a Democrat versus 41% who would back a Republican. Notably, only 4% didn't know. That's really different than that 17% figure who said that they had made up their mind. And I think that goes back to how this question was phrased, which is terrible.
0: Wait, okay, this is what struck me. I'm thinking— 66% of women over 50 don't know if they're going to vote for a Democrat or Republican. So I looked at other generic ballot polling as well, and it's 9% don't know, 13% don't know. Either they found an extremely unique sample of women over the age of 50, and as you mentioned, maybe all people over the age of 50, or there's something very screwy going on because we would be living in a wildly different world if two thirds of Americans like, didn't have a sense, didn't know who they were going to vote for this fall.
3: Right. Like generic ballot polling shows right now anywhere from like 8 to 10 to 12 percent of Americans are undecided. These women are actually more decided. Only four percent on the generic ballot poll question in this ARP said that they didn't know. And it was three percent overall. So if anything, this block of voters has a better understanding of which party they plan to support in November. And, you know, it's somewhat positive for Democrats in the sense that Women over 50, at least right now, it was a seven point lead for Democrats in terms of planning to vote for Democrats versus Republicans, which is kind of in line with like women in general are more often to vote for Democrats. And if their voting patterns hold from 2018, this group is more likely to vote than other different blocks. That could be good for Democrats. But this idea that they don't know who they're going to vote for is just blatantly wrong. And in fact, they know more than other blocks of the electorate right now.
1: Something else that struck me about this poll is that the issues listed as top of mind for older women voters, so cost of living, inflation, the economy, et cetera, those are top of mind for most voters, I would assume. So like beyond the fact that it's AARP conducting this poll, I was kind of confused as to why we're putting so much pressure onto older women. I mean, these issues are important to most of the electorate.
0: Yeah. And maybe that's something we can get into here, which is- What is the incentive for putting your group that you represent out there as the deciding block in X or Y election? Like, why do groups always try to frame polls or election data this way?
2: Well, I think if you make yourself seem important, maybe politicians will pursue things that are important to you from an interest perspective. So. For older voters, maybe it's things like health care, social security, stuff like that. So trying to make uh, – people who are going to get elected to Congress, pay attention to your issues, and you say, our voters are really important to your chances of winning. So you should keep that in mind uh, moving forward. So I think it's just sort of trying to get them to pay attention to their issues.
0: But to then say that the issues are the economy and inflation doesn't sound to me like, oh, and also we have these like niche issues that you otherwise aren't paying attention to. Are there niche issues amongst this cohort of women over 50 that if a politician were to read this press release without thinking critically about it would think like, oh, man, I definitely need to start campaigning on X issue?
1: I mean, I do think there's an opportunity for congressional candidates to appeal to this block through messages like to Jeff's point on shoring up Social Security or controlling costs for prescription drugs or reducing inflation or something like that. But again, I wouldn't say that worrying about those issues are necessarily unique to older female voters.
3: And I think Alex hit it on the nail earlier, kind of pointing out the top issues that rose to the top in this survey are what are most Americans are concerned about right now. Traditionally, right, it's like, don't take away senior citizens' Medicare. I was just looking in the crosstabs when they were asked to say three of the most important issues, only like, Three to five percent, based on various um, subgroups, were saying that it was the most important issue. So there's not really anything that emerged from this poll that was super actionable either for this demographic that AARP, as a premier retirement kind of association group, would want to put in front of politicians.
0: I love that descriptor for AARP, (laughs) a premier retirement (laughs) association. It sounds so chic.
3: I know, right?
0: Can Can I join? Yeah, right. ARP is on their sh-. Let me tell you, when I was like 20 years old, I changed my age on Facebook to be 80 years old or something because I just didn't want to have my real data on Facebook. Call me paranoid. Within a year, I was receiving AARP information. Wow. It was crazy.
1: I'm pretty sure anyone can join AARP regardless of age, right? Can you? I'm like 82% sure I've heard that fun fact before.
0: I'm going to Google this right now. Can you join AARP at any age? Under 50, you can still join. Learn about AARP
1: membership. There is no minimum age to join. I feel like you're not supposed to use the discounts.
0: This isn't the podcast that we're doing. But (laughs) is it, would it be ages to just not let people join under the age of 50? It says while ARP is dedicated to people over 50, there's no minimum age to join. People of all ages can get an ARP membership for as low as $12 per year with auto renewal. Anyone can become an ARP member and gain access to hundreds of discounts. You can even get the discounts, what? programs and resources.
1: <laughs> wow. Wow.
0: Uh-oh. Did this podcast turn into an ARP ad? A <laughs> bunch of people are going to find out about I know this know what now. we're doing
1: after this podcast, guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I'll see you guys later. I'm going to spend the rest of my day um, buying discounted <laughs> blank. What kinds of discounts can you get? Auto insurance? I don't have a car, but like, try it out. Restaurants? I have no
3: yeah, idea. Yeah, I think restaurants.
0: Riddle me this. If you saw me at like a diner and I pulled out my AARP card and asked for a discount, how would you feel about me?
3: Yeah, I would not give it to you. You know, you would be a grifter. As like the server or like
1: a friend who's there with you? A, <laughs> a grifter.
0: As a, as a bister, you, you
2: would, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> a server in New York would be like, get, get out of here.
0: Get out of here. Um, yeah,
2: if I
1: was a server, I'd definitely look at you sideways. But if I was with you, I'd probably be like, I'm not really with this. <laughs> we're paying separately.
0: <laughs> oh, man. So in conclusion, anyone can join AARP, but when it comes to this poll, we're going to have to say, so sorry, a bad use of polling. Alex, we heard from you. Sarah, we heard from you. Jeff, do you also sign off on this bad use of polling rating?
2: Yeah, I, I do. And mainly for the the point Sarah was was making, which is... To use that question about people making up their minds as evidence of undecided voters is is silly because <laughs> if only about a fifth are saying that they've decided anything, but we live in a really polarized country where most people lean one way or the other, that just doesn't seem remotely realistic. And then g- the generic ballot reflects exactly why that is the case because – all about nine and 10 have made up their mind or whatever it is, so.
0: Wait, Jeff, why would people say that then? Are they thinking, oh, well, I don't even know who's gonna win the primary yet, so I don't know who I'm gonna vote for. I mean, what's going on? Right, I think it's probably
2: a combination of they don't actually know what the candidate of the party they prefer is going to be yet in most cases. And I also think that there is a bias towards saying, well, I haven't made up my mind yet to seem like you are more... Flexible and open-minded when in reality most voters lean one way and most of them vote the way they lean or the way they identify. So I think there is a bias, though, especially in a culture where now, if you just ask people their party identification straight up, more will say they're independent than Democratic or Republican. But yet we know that about nine and ten lean toward one of the major parties or identifies with one of the major parties. So uh, I think there's a bias toward not trying to sound partisan, but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, they've mostly had their minds made up at this point. Not to say that that group that doesn't have its minds made up in in reality isn't important, or the fact that some people might even change their minds by the time the election arrives. That's very important um, when thinking about the midterm, but I think the way this is presented was not good.
0: Is it fair to say, if this group were truly more undecided than the rest of the electorate, would this claim be a better or even good use of polling?
3: I don't think undecided is the way to think about it. Jeffrey actually had a piece on this earlier this year, and it was looking at Latino voters and their political affiliation. And just the fact that they are not typically like strong Democrats or strong Republicans. There, as Jeffrey was saying, you know, there's this larger trend of more Americans identifying as independent, but particularly upon Latino voters, like their strength of loyalty to both the Republican and Democratic Party just isn't that strong compared to other voters. So that makes them a little bit more swing and like a key part of the electorate you want to watch. But I think the second part of this that's really important is, you know, how likely is this group to turn out to vote? And again, like this AARP poll didn't show evidence that these women over 50 were really that swingy, but they do turn out to vote. And, you know, one thing we have covered, at five, I was trying to think through like, what's the one silver lining for this poll? And it is this idea that women voters, you know, they vote at higher rates than men, Different crosstabs of women are more loyal to the Republican Party, more loyal to the Democratic Party. It switches back and forth. So like this idea that women are important voters, there's some validity to that. This poll just doesn't help capture like what it is that women over 50 is really driving their vote.
2: And I think to Sarah's point, in a midterm election where we know young people do not turn out at the same rate as they do in a general election, and they're lower to begin with even in a presidential, I should say. but women who are 50 or older are going to make up a larger share of the electorate in a midterm than they do in a presidential election, because older people are more likely to vote and they're more likely
0: to show up in a midterm. So that's maybe another silver lining in all this. And as Sarah, you already said, you could basically broaden it out and say anyone over 50, you hardly have to be that steeped in electoral analysis and data to know that older people oftentimes determine the outcomes of elections by voting. At much higher rates than the rest of the electorate. So I am sure ARP has a good case to make to politicians that they should care about their memberships, political priorities, but maybe not perhaps in quite this way. Let's move on and talk about the special election in Alaska. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Last month, Alaska Congressman Don Young passed away at age 88, After almost 50 years in the House, he was the longest-serving member of Congress and actually represented Alaska for three-fourths of the state's existence. His passing has prompted a special election to fill his seat, which has brought another iconic Alaska politician back into the spotlight. That is, of course, Sarah Palin. She's the former governor of the state and 2008 Republican vice presidential nominee, So let's talk about whether she's primed for a political comeback. Jeff, you have written about exactly this topic. So let's begin with this. What do Americans think of Sarah Palin overall today?
2: Well, among Americans as a whole, she's not viewed terribly favorably. For instance, there was a Economist YouGov survey from uh, kind of the end of January, beginning of February that actually asked about what are people's opinions of Sarah Palin. And in that poll, 32 percent said they had a favorable opinion of her and 47 percent said they had an unfavorable opinion of her. So, you know, in that sense, it's like, well, clearly more people have an unfavorable opinion of Palin than not. But among Republicans, which is important for just sort of thinking about her within the party and thinking about a state like Alaska, which is a Republican leaning state, she's a bit more popular. Among Republicans, 62 percent nationally had a favorable opinion of her, while only 23 percent had an unfavorable opinion.
0: Okay, so taking that national picture, and as you said, a Republican state like Alaska, you might think, hey, we may be looking at Congresswoman Sarah Palin quite soon. How do Alaskans, though, think about her? I don't think it's too dissimilar. We don't have a ton of data on this, but there
2: was a top line finding um, from Alaska survey research from last October when they were testing out if Palin were to run in the U.S. Senate race against fellow Republican Lisa Murkowski. And in that poll, 31 percent of registered voters in Alaska said they had a favorable opinion of her, which is kind of similar to what we just saw with like the national numbers of 35 percent among adults nationally. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's a situation where conservative Republicans like Sarah Palin. And Alaska is a Republican-leaning state. But among the broader electorate, she she might have issues because she's not terribly popular.
3: And Alaska is just such a weird state politically. And the fact that they're trying out a new electoral system this year, which let's see if I can get it right because I've gotten confused a couple times with it. But here in the primary, all candidates are going to run together. And then those top four advance the general, and then it'll be ranked choice voting. Part of the reform here was this idea that candidates now have to appeal to a broader swath. So as Jeffrey's getting at with some of these polls, you know, if she's only in the low 30s among Alaska registered voters, and Alaska's a state where, yes, it's Republican leaning, but it also has an indie streak, she might not be able to build the coalition she needs to win statewide.
1: And doesn't the top four where they have four and then they rank them by choice, doesn't it make it possible that Alaska backs a more like moderate Republican versus someone like Palin? I guess my thinking is that if Palin is the lone Republican against a Democrat after like two rounds of voting reallocations, then yeah, she'll probably win because of how red Alaska is. But if she's up against a more moderate Republican in the final round, then hypothetically, if I'm understanding this correctly, couldn't, you know, like Democrats, moderate Republicans and independents kind of team up against her?
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right, which, of course, brings us to the important question of what does the candidate landscape look like apart from Sarah Palin? Am I correct that there's over 50 people running for this special election seat, Jeff?
2: I think the number is actually 48 in the end that were certified a couple who filed, actually withdrew some of the deadlines there on actually filing and then withdrawing if you had filed. But in the end, you have a lot of candidates and probably about 10 to 12 of them are at least somewhat notable, at least in Alaska. Now, Palin is far and away the most well-known person running, but you do have a state senator, Joshua Revak, who's a Republican who was a former aide to Don Young. Um, I think he's going to see some party support there. There's also Nick Begich III, who is uh, part of the Begich family, which if you know anything about Alaska politics, his uncle, Mark, was a Democratic U.S. senator. But Nick Begich III is actually a Republican, and he was already running against Don Young. And so it's possible that he sort of had a little bit of you know a lead, an early start here um, that might help him attract support. There was also Tara Sweeney, who is a member of Trump's administration and is a Inupiat, I think is how it's pronounced. Alaska Native population. And then there are a number of Democrats running as well. And probably the most notable independent running is Al Gross, who was actually the Democratic nominee in 2020. Alaska has previously had a system where you could technically be undeclared or independent in your party affiliation, but win a party's primary. It's... A little a little strange, but that's how Al Gross was actually the twenty twenty nominee for the Democrats in the US Senate race where he lost, but he has a lot of name ID. It's probably a decent bet to advance. Because again, as we were saying, and I just want to make it clear, in the primary, each voter has one vote. And after all those votes are cast, the top four candidates will advance to the general where there will be ranked choice voting.
0: And so looking at this landscape, does it seem likely that Sarah Palin wins the special election? I think it's likely that she advances to the general election. I think, in
2: fact, the new format probably even helps make it even more likely because all she has to do is finish in the top four candidates in the primary, and then she gets to the general election, and everybody's got one vote, and she's the most well-known candidate, and she's a Republican in a Republican-leaning state. I think when you get to the general election, a lot depends on who else is there. If there is, say, a Republican alternative who is able to build up a lot of support and maybe... Be a little bit like Murkowski and that has some cross-party support potentially, could bring in some independents and Democrats, like maybe that person can beat her. But then, you know, it's just a little more unpredictable because in ranked choice voting, it's like whomever's in fourth place gets dropped, their votes get reallocated, and then you do it again with three candidates left and the third place gets dropped. And so a lot depends on the order of that and who exactly is in the general election. But I think she's a very good bet to advance the general election
1: yeah I completely agree with what Jeff said. I am pretty positive she'll be among the top four candidates. This kind of reminds me of the polla that we did actually on celebrity political candidates. you know she came into the race, starts off with super high name ID, tons of media attention, and probably will have an easy time fundraising as well. And since the primary and general elections are in June and August respectively that, leaves little time for other candidates to sort of build name recognition. And that does give Palin a leg up, at least in the beginning.
2: Yeah, it's actually such a fast turnaround that the primary is going to be held by mail. So it could be an all-mail voting.
0: Which is so crazy. We should say this is a weird time to be holding a special election. Are all of the people running in the special election also then running in the non-special general election this fall?
2: No, there are some people running in the special who have said that they do not plan to file for the regular general election. And the filing deadline for the regular general election is not until the beginning of June. It's a very weird situation where most of the candidates of note, though, are running in both. And they are essentially running in two elections at the same time. And then it gets particularly strange because you have the June primary for the special election and the special election Takes place on August 16th among those four candidates who advance from the primary. That is the same day as the regular primary for the regular November election for the same seat. So I don't think it's going to happen, but there is a chance that the winner of the special election might not even advance out of the regular primary for the regular general election in November. So this happens like once a cycle out there uh, with a weird special happening around the same time as like the primary for the regular general election. And it's always just kind of a weird situation.
0: So some interesting electoral systems at play, both with a special election and of course, another high profile test for ranked choice voting, which folks may remember from the New York City mayoral election last year. You know, it sounds like Palin's future is pretty unsure at this point, and that she does face some disadvantages when it comes to that rank choice voting, you know, second round general election, which makes me curious, you know, why is Palin's favorability rating amongst Alaskans only in the low 30s? I think folks probably remember back in 2008, one of the reasons that John McCain picked her as a running mate was that she was the single most popular governor in the United States at the time. Obviously, a lot has happened in the 14 years since then, and even during that presidential campaign. But why isn't Palin more popular in Alaska?
2: I think the easy answer is that she quit her job early. So she was elected in 2006. And so she was due up for re-election in 2010, in her first term there. And she resigned in July of 2009. So she basically just, in the Aftermath of the 2008 presidential campaign, she went back to Alaska and apparently decided she didn't want to continue being governor because she resigned. I think there have been a lot of reasons thrown around for that, but the fact that she sort of just quit the job and sort of disappeared from being a part of Alaska politics, but was still this national political figure, she had this Sarah Pack that was very active, that she was running around the country, you know, raising money for. Uh, She was a Fox News contributor for a long time. Like she was still like doing things, but she was no longer governor. And so I think there's – I have to think at least some of the, the distaste that Alaskans feel for her stems from her quitting the job basically.
3: I'm curious to see more recent polling in Alaska in terms of how Alaskans feel towards Palin, just given where we are as a country with her kind of being the PG version of America first that Trump put forward. And now, you know, Alaska did vote for Trump in 2020. Has that helped rebuild some of her brand in the state? But I think Jeffrey's right. It's hard to remember now, but when she resigned, it was really shocking. People initially thought, oh, she's going to, you know, launch her political career on the national stage. but then like formed a reality TV show that only lasted one season. And I think quitting midterm is just really unusual in politics. And it does seem as if, at least for the polling that we have now up until this point, Alaskans haven't really forgiven her for that.
2: I do think it's worth noting, though, that if she is in the final four candidates and seems like she's the strongest Republican choice, don't rule out partisanship, pulling in some even some Republicans who don't like her that much. Uh, In Alaska. So I don't want to make it sound like the 31% favorability mark makes it a given that she's like not going to win, you know, like she could win, (laughs) definitely.
1: But when it comes to like, since she has built more of a national profile in recent years, when it comes to local issues that are important to Alaskan voters, does Palin have a lot of recent experience or involvement to build a platform on? Because my suspicion would be no, but. I'm also not closely following. In the modern U.S. House of Representatives, does that matter? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Can I? Yes? Is that the wrong answer, Galen? I don't know. I mean, it,
0: it seems like increasingly when you're running for U.S. House, you're talking a lot about national talking points, much more than when you're running for mayor or governor or local politics. Like it, it seems like even American voters have separated out the two in their minds in that there is more crossover and there is more accountability for state-level politicians. And then when it comes to senators and, and especially House members, it's kind of like an ideological battle. Anyone feel free to disagree with me.
3: I was going to say, that's true. And I mean... Don Young, who, you know, this is who they're now replacing, he was like a very straight pork and barrel kind of legislator, right? And that in and of itself is kind of a dying breed, though.
0: Wait, let's define that. Let's define, what's a pork and barrel legislator? Pork
3: and barrel, he's like, you know, I need funding for a bridge to this very small island. You know, is it a really good use of taxpayer dollars? Very questionable, but he gets it. Alaska in and of itself, too, you know, a lot of oiling and drilling in the area. And so like, that's kind of a weird issue for the state. There's also a large native population in the state. They have their own interests. You know, Murkowski, I think, has kind of built an interesting coalition then of more moderate voters, a large population of the native Alaskans in the state voting for her. It's a weird state politically, and it's one in which its legislators, mm. I think on a national stage, have done more than other politicians to bring home some of the money to that state. So I think Alex is right in the sense of like Palin has not been involved in local groups, depending on who else advances in the fourth. And like I say, who else? Because I really do think Palin will. I do think it's kind of a question of like, what has she done for Alaska recently?
2: Reading some of the coverage of this and people being interviewed who were involved in Alaska politics, some were like very surprised that she'd actually filed, even though it was rumored in the couple of days in the lead up, they were actually surprised that she did file because they hadn't really heard much from her in local Republican circles in recent times. So there might be a question there where early polling might show her doing really well, but that's because she's most well-known. Does that hold until August when the actual special election takes place, assuming she does indeed advance, which I figure she will? Who knows? I think the ranked choice voting thing also just makes this a lot more unpredictable because of Alaska's independent streak.
0: We have talked a little bit about Alaska ideologically, its independent streak. Of course, it did vote for Trump by 10 points in 2020. This is an opportunity for us to zero in on Alaska, specifically apart from Sarah Palin. And of course, Lisa Murkowski, the senator from Alaska, is running for reelection this year. She has broken with the GOP in some very high profile ways. She voted against repealing the ACA, which ultimately doomed that bill. She voted to convict Trump in the Senate for his role in the January 6th attack. Last week, she voted to confirm Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. I don't want to steal the spotlight away from Sarah Palin, but while we're talking about winning statewide elections in Alaska, what does the future look like for Lisa Murkowski?
2: I've written about it previously, but I think there, there was a strain of thought that said the new ranked choice voting system was going to make like her reelection like a surefire bet. Because she has had this ability to hold on to some of the Republican base, bring in basically independents and Democrats to win. And it's very possible that she will be able to do that and win re-election. But I don't think it's a certainty because I think it also depends on who advances to that final race. Or she's running against uh, Kelly shabaka I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Who's Trump endorsed a Republican opponent. And we know from polling that Murkowski is not popular among Republicans in Alaska, so essentially the situation is if Democrats have a candidate who is reasonably strong and can hold on to most Democratic voters, that could create a situation where Murkowski is in like third place when you're getting into that ranked choice voting situation. And then she doesn't get to that final two as they're reallocating votes. Now, the way things are shaping up, it might work out for Murkowski because it's Sounds like one of the more well-known Democrats who had announced that she was going to run decided, "Eh, I'm going to run for re-election to the state Senate instead. So it seems possible, and again, the filing deadline isn't until the beginning of June, that Murkowski might be able to win over Democrats almost by default if there's no notable Democrat running. Um, And so that could, I think, in the long run, give her a much better shot of winning. And maybe that explains partly her, her recent Supreme Court vote, whereas there was a thought that maybe she would vote no because she wanted to shore up at least some part, or a bit more of the Republican base than she currently has.
3: It's hard to say, too, because at this point, there isn't any public polling available. But one thing I think is telling is, you know, we do have a campaign poll funded by Shibaka, and it only shows her up by two points. And, you know, generally speaking, for campaign polls, you want to put your best foot forward publicly. And so it's hard to say at this point, just like how serious of a threat Shibaka is to Murkowski, particularly given that this new electoral system in Alaska really is trying to benefit more of a broad coalition. And if you're just running to the right of Murkowski, you have to bring in other voters to win in that state.
0: What prompted this new electoral system in Alaska? Was this voter-initiated, or did politicians themselves approve of this? Uh, it
2: was a referendum. And Republicans, Alaska Republicans actually tried to basically get the system like overturned and in court, but they failed. And, and it's understandable why they did, because they know that with Alaska being a Republican-leaning state, that in most cases, the Republican primary winner will go on to win in a plurality wins situation. So ranked choice voting makes it somewhat more possible for someone who is not a Republican to win, I think is the end result of that.
3: Right, because think back to 2010, Murkowski lost the Republican primary and then, you know, famously goes on to win as a write-in candidate. It makes a lot of sense for why Republicans would not have wanted this change in the state. Because, like, Alaska's not a swing state, right? Like, it is Republican-leaning. It just has a really weird coalition, though, for, like, a general election how that works.
0: That primary is August 16th. I'm sure we will be covering Alaska between now and then. Of course, we will. There's a special election as well. So we will be back. But let's talk about political
1: outliers.
3: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author.
1: And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.
3: People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories. Follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.
0: What is it like to be a political outlier in a divided political landscape? Alex, your latest piece in your series on political outliers is out today. People can go check it out on the 538 website, and they certainly should. I love this series. But essentially, your most recent installment looks at what it's like to be a Republican in urban and inner suburban America. And your previous installment looked at sort of the reverse, which is what it's like to be a rural Democrat. As the country has become increasingly geographically sorted, both of those political breeds have become rarer. And in interviews in both pieces, people expressed almost an exasperation with their political parties that aren't really competing where they live. So let's talk about what you heard and the broader political forces at play. First off, Alex, I don't know that we've talked about one of your political outliers pieces before specifically on this podcast, but what's the idea behind this series? What made you want to talk to folks who don't seem to fit in politically?
1: We said this at the very beginning, but we didn't go into this column with the intent of trying to predict electoral trends and outcomes. Rather, we really just wanted to tell stories about how different people are processing politics. So as you mentioned, Galen, we had the story today on Republicans living in the suburbs or cities, um, in addition to that previous piece on Democrats in Trump country. But we've also talked to Gen Z Republicans and evangelical progressives. There are tons of identities worth exploring. But yeah, again, the overall goal of the column was just to unpack the many divides in groups of voters that are often portrayed as all voting the same.
0: So what did you hear from urban and dense suburban, as we refer to it based on our, I guess, our 538 urbanization index Republicans. So Republicans who live in cities and, and close suburbs.
1: Probably the three takeaways is one, they're seeing a decent amount of Democrats in their areas running unopposed, particularly at the hyper local level, city council races, et cetera. The second point that stuck out is that many were excited for the midterms because conventional wisdom, as we all know, suggests that their party will overperform at the national level. And the third thing that really struck me is that Many saw the 2020 protest for racial justice as something that pushed them even further right. And the reason for that is many reported hearing takes on police reform that they didn't agree with. And in some cases, their respective cities even took steps to roll back policing that rubbed them the wrong way.
0: And how did what you heard in reporting out this column compare with what you heard from rural Democrats?
1: The overwhelming sentiment with both groups is I'm going to tend to keep my political opinions to myself because I don't know what my neighbors believe and I don't want to get into any sort of fight or argument with the person living next door to me. I heard tons of personal anecdotes about the struggles of finding friends or even like dating in the cities Mm. that they live in. And both groups felt as though their respective parties have sort of abandoned courting voters like them in their parts of the state. So
0: what we're talking about here, the broader political force at play, is geographic sorting, which is, I'm sure listeners have heard us talk about it many times, but is the fact that people who associate with the Democratic Party and Republican Party oftentimes don't live in the same areas, and that's become increasingly the case over the past couple or few decades. Why is that? Why have we become more sorted geographically? Yeah, I mean, I think... Part
2: of it comes down to the preferences of people who tend to be more liberal versus more conservative. I mean, you can see in like polling from places like Pew Research that people who are Democrats or liberal leaning tend to like urban spaces. They like riding a bike to work or, you know, various things like that, where it's like someone who's more conservative leaning might tend to prefer. Living in a house with a big yard or not living near anyone at all. And it seems strange. And I don't th- I think part of it is that this kind of thing did not neatly map onto partisan identity in the past, but it has become more and more so that it does map onto it. And I also think it's worth noting that like with partisan sorting, it's not just about people moving to a place that's it's more like what they want it to be. It's also people in that place beginning to take on the political attitudes of the people around them. So it's like there are a couple of different things going on, but in the end, it's sort of this big sort idea where you do have urban centers and the dense suburbs around urban centers becoming bluer and bluer, the sort of outer suburbs and exurbs becoming this very 50-50 kind of ground, and then more rural areas becoming just incredibly red. And so that's sort of the ground that, that our political battles are being fought over.
3: You know, I think inherently in this sorting framing, there's kind of a choice implied in it. And I think in part that's right. People do move to different cities, but it's also a question of who's left behind. And I think you see that in particular in rural parts of the country. There's just not the same influx of people coming into those areas. Whereas now, you know, in bigger cities and suburbs around the cities, like people are moving to those areas. And as Jeffrey's saying, you take on the cultural attitudes of that area. And so it's an older poll now from Pew, but I think it's a really telling one in the sense that Democrats and Republicans used to have overlapping views. There were still differences, but X percent believed in conservative views, and they were still Democrat, and X percent liberal, vice versa for Republicans. But now, the overall share of Americans um, who have like an equal number of liberal and conservative views that's declined from roughly fifty percent in 1994 to 32 percent in 2017. And you know, here it is, five years later. I'm sure that's even further declined. And so increasingly, you just have these two Americas in terms of how they think about issues politically, those around them share similar views, and it's just this reinforcing bubble.
0: We're talking about almost two things here. So one is sorting, which is people not living next to people who who have different, of course, everyone has idiosyncratic and different views, but sort of broadly speaking, people live next to people who vote similarly to them oftentimes. The other piece of the equation here is a realignment because, of course, Democrats used to win in lots of rural states and lots of rural areas within those states. And Republicans used to be the party of like the dense inner suburbs. You think of, I mean, George H.W. Bush's Republican Party was exactly that. You know, he lives in dense suburban Houston or actually, you know, in the city of Houston. He lived, of course, he's passed away. What role did that sort of realignment play in all of this? And why did that happen?
1: In the 1950s and 60s, the suburbs were really seen as like a safe haven for more conservative, white, middle-class voters who wanted to get away from the more diverse urban areas, commonly known as the white flight. But in the last two decades or so, the suburbs have just become more welcoming for people of color and immigrants, both of whom tend to have more liberal political views. And as a result, the suburbs are more competitive now than they were 50 or 60 or so years ago. So of course, like Democratic gains might not hold in 2022 without Trump on the ballot, considering that a lot of what we saw in 2016, 2018, and 2020 appears to be driven by disdain for the former president. And polls so far suggest that Biden is really struggling to maintain his hold on suburban voters, But I think the big piece and why the suburbs have become more competitive really just comes down to the demographic changes of those areas.
3: It's a hard story to diagnose, I think, the specifics of it, right? It's just like our politics have gotten more nationalized. You used to have Senate races with senators kind of running on local issues. We were talking about that a little bit with, like, Murkowski and how weird Alaska is. And I think, actually, Vermont is a great example of a very rural state that still votes very blue And someone like Sanders, you know, very progressive, um, maybe like the most high profile, at least running for like president, who's been a progressive candidate in recent years, you know, is the senator there. Until recently, though, he had an A-plus from the NRA on his stance on gun control in the state and gun rights. And that was because he was afforded a certain level of being an idiosyncratic politician. And that's just increasingly disappearing at the state level, particularly within the Senate, because voters increasingly view their Senate vote as who will control the Senate. Whereas like, you still see some variation among governors and things aren't as ideological. You can have a Republican like Hogan in Maryland, but would be harder to have a Democrat in the Senate in Louisiana, even though the governor is a Democrat. But like, What I struggle with in this conversation is why we have just so much eroded the natural moderates anchors that existed in both parties. And increasingly, you just see, you know, Republicans, hardcore conservative, though I think what it means to be conservative is changing. Maybe that exposes some interesting factions. And then Democrats, you see an increasing percentage that say very liberal. And it's this question of, well, where do the more moderate and conservative voters go? And they're not currently, I think, represented more so in this electoral landscape for these national elections.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think some of the studies on this sort of thing is that, and it sort of speaks to what we were talking about with where people even like living, is that a whole lot of things that used to not be overtly political have become tied up in partisan identity. It's almost like everything is politics now. And that used to not really be the case necessarily. And because of that, that also ties to like the idea of like, negative partisanship, and just really disliking the other side and everything that they stand for. So you have sort of everything is politics, and we really don't like the other side. And that just makes you even more sort of strident in your views overall. And that pressure just sort of pushes you away, uh, maybe from the middle, and pushes you away from the other party, most certainly.
3: Particularly coming out of the 2016 election, there's more research that shows that voters in parties are now changing their views on issues to match politicians in that party with issues of gender and sexism and then racism being like really three gender, sexism, two kind of together. But issues that voters, you know, maybe Prior to 2016, prior to even elections before that held more nuanced views. Now they're kind of updating their you know to use 538 lingo priors to match that party. And I think as Jeffrey's saying, you're just seeing that on every issue now and it just gives candidates like you know Mansion less wiggle room, I think, um, to be more idiosyncratic. He obviously still is, but you can't imagine another Democrat winning for Senate in West Virginia.
2: Yeah, when he retires, we all know that that seat is extremely likely to flip to the Republicans.
0: Yeah. Alex, this makes you wonder when you were talking to lots of different folks for these columns that you did, how do people who are political outliers don't fit into the political geography of their area? What kind of connection do they have to their places beyond politics? I mean, are they thinking of moving? What's their feeling about being a geographic outlier?
1: I found that Democrats living in Trump country were less likely to move. And my understanding there is a lot of them were a bit older. They had kids who were in schools. They had houses. The cost of living was lower totally understand that. They wanted more of a quiet community to just kind of settle down or retire. in. Republicans, on the other hand, I think, pay me three of the five that I talked to were in their mid to late 20s. They talked about things like the increased cost of living, traffic, etc. So those, if anything, were things that would make them want to leave their respective cities. It wasn't so much like the changing politics that made them want to go.
0: Yeah. I also, as I mentioned in reading these pieces, voters talked about almost a sense of exasperation with their own parties for not campaigning in the areas where they lived. And rural Democrats may feel like there's a case to be made for their party on health care and poverty. Urban Republicans may feel there's a case to be made by their party on high taxes and an increase in violent crime. Why don't the parties have more infrastructure in places where they aren't currently competitive? Is there a sense that this is the way things are and both parties are okay with it? Or is there a sense within the parties that they'd like to revert to the mean a little bit, you know, make inroads in areas where they might not be competitive now, but maybe competitive next election or 10 years from now?
1: I feel like we're going to see more Republicans trying to court suburban voters, particularly now without Trump on the ballot, than we maybe would have in the past from 2016 to 2020. I don't know how much Democrats are really doing to court rural voters, especially since rural voters have become increasingly red and increasingly just you know in favor of the Republican Party under Trump. But I think the takeaway is just given Republicans' continued dominance in rural America, I think Democrats have largely abandoned trying to win voters who reside there and are opting instead to focus their resources on bluer cities and suburbs. And I think given some of that geographic polarization that we talked about earlier, Maybe that makes sense. But I do think the Democrats will eventually need to expand their base if they want to continue to be competitive nationally.
0: Or if they want to, you know, win a majority of the Senate.
3: Yeah, but you know, I mean, Trump lost the 2020 election, but at the same time, he grew his vote share among rural voters. He won, this is using Pew's validated survey results, 59% in 2016. That rose to 65% in 2020. Like, it's really hard for Democrats to make gains in rural parts of the country. I think as Alex is getting at, there are some Urban, suburban counties that are kind of out of Republicans' reach. But there are a lot of suburban, ex-urban counties that really are still on the table, more susceptible to the overall like political environment. And, you know, I think particularly for the Senate, because it kind of has that role bias, that's really hard for Democrats to overcome and to still have a majority in the Senate. But you just haven't seen really any kind of concerted effort or strategy there to win back rural voters.
2: And I think this may get to the difficulty of that also comes down to the fact that everything is political now. So this brings to mind sort of the primacy of a lot of social issues and hot button issues and how, yes, voters are unhappy about like inflation right now, but a lot of people uh, are either died in the world, Democrats or Republicans, in part because of very strong feelings about certain social issues. And so to hear like, Democrats in rural places being upset about their party not being able to make inroads or not maybe campaigning expending resources. Well, the problem is that a message like rural broadband, let's invest in rural broadband is not going to win over a lot of voters in rural areas. And for Republicans – Yes, I'm sure Democrats in high-tax cities, high-cost-of-living cities do not love the current fiscal situation, but Republicans for the most part to a lot of those voters are completely out of bounds. Like they would never vote for a Republican because they view Republicans as against gay rights or, you know, against or racist or all these other things that that might go into that. So that I think is another important part of of why you don't see the parties expending resources in these areas where they're really outnumbered, which makes the suburbs the real battleground because some parts of the suburbs are so very
0: 50-50. Right. We've been talking as if the the suburbs are in one column or another. In reality, there's, according to our urbanization index, four different types of suburbs. The dense suburbs are quite blue. The exurban areas or the outer suburbs are almost as red as the rural areas. And then there's a sort of like in-between mix where the battleground is.
1: In addition to Jeff's point, and we hit on this in the last story we did on rural Democrats, is that some of the ideas and issues that animate the Democratic base today would likely turn off rural voters or just be untethered to rural life. So my understanding, based on interviews with the five or six rural Democrats I spoke with, is that things like guns, religion, abortion, those were top of mind to their GOP neighbors. And It's possible that if Democrats simply showed up in more rural areas than liberal ideas like universal health care, free community college, um, or even kitchen table economic issues like job programs could resonate with voters there. But at this point, it's just not clear to me how open Republican voters are to even listening to Democrats, especially just given how partisan our politics have become.
3: We've talked about it on this podcast a lot. I think back to that Echelon Insights poll that was showing that, you know, on the whole, Americans are a lot a lot more economically progressive, but culturally conservative. And so then that for Democrats, particularly in rural America, which is already, you know, on the most conservative end of the spectrum, it's just the brand of the Democratic Party and the cultural issues it represents. It's hard to see how they make a winning fight then on economic issues win back voters because right as Jeffrey was saying like rural broadband it's a huge investment it's great overall for rural America it's not going to be what drives voters to turn out.
0: Yeah so these maybe more policy based arguments are sorted out in the primaries which can also be interesting affairs and which we'll be tracking this year to see if there is a sort of debate between the center and the extremes within both parties when it comes to the primaries this year so we will track those but Let's leave things there for now. Folks can go check out that outlierscom on 538.com. Thank you, Sarah, Alex, and Jeff.
1: Thanks, Joe.
0: And thanks, Galen. Thanks, everybody.
1: Thanks, Galen.
0: My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.